Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Clark, and welcome to Brooklyn this evening. Thank you for being here, as ever, and thank you for supporting the Trust. So, ladies and gentlemen, I've looked back over my past four years of running these events, and we've had a big focus on motorcycles, which has been a lot to do, I think, with the uh, interest that's here in the museum. And the names from the two-wheeled sport, I'm really pleased that we've had the late John Surtees, Jim Redman, John McGuinness, James Whitton, Ian Hutchinson, and Agostini. And, of course, Steve Parrish. <laughs> you can't say that. Without him, most of this wouldn't have happened. So we're going to add another name along with Steve tonight. Fast Freddie Spencer. Come and join me, gentlemen. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Welcome. For me. For you. Welcome. Ah, thank oh, you. Wow. Can you hear us at the back? Most importantly. Now, we heard about the fire alarm. Just basically watch me. Because if wherever I go, that's where you want to be, because I'll be the first one. Yeah, out. yeah. Wherever Steve um, Ryan's just follow. But another big round of applause. Three times world oh. champion, Freddie Spencer, ladies and gentlemen. It's, it is great to be here. I, I respect so much the history of, of racing, of all motorsports, and, and to have the privilege to be here with all of you and with Steve this evening is, is uh, something I was really looking forward to, so thank you for that. Mm. We hope to entertain you. and We'll, we'll, do, our we'll, we'll do our best, well, that's well, for we sure. Can, we can only do our best. I love yes. coming here because I don't feel yes. too old amongst all... No, I'm not really. <laughs> But it is lovely, and it's such a wonderful museum because I have a love for... Yes, please, yeah, thank please. you. That is okay. gin, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, I grabbed, vodka. Well, I grabbed the right one this yeah, time. Yeah, that's a gin. You vodka. remember last time it was... Done. I do, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. If you wouldn't mind carrying him out a little bit later on. <laughs> um, so, Freddie, um, yes. we're going to start from the beginning because, A, I'm old and I get confused if we don't and we start jumping around. I'm sure everyone else would prefer that. Um, Four years old, you started riding your yes. bike. So yes. why? Did your dad love riding bikes? Or what, what, what kind of introduced? Well, Obviously, he did to you, but yes. was it because he used to race? Well, you know, I, one thing, I, I've learned many things as over the years of, of life. But one of the things is how if you really pay attention to certain things in certain moments, you understand um, the meaning of them. And, and one of the things for me, was when I was when I was born, two things happened the year that I was born. One is is my parents moved from inside a neighborhood to the country. And when they moved to the country, they my my dad had purchased two acres of land and he built a house on one of them on one side of the property on one acre and then the other acre. And he had like three different times someone was going to buy it and it fell through. And so it never was developed. Okay. And that was one. The other thing was, is that same year, they stopped racing go-karts. Go-kart racing was in, in, in Shreveport, Louisiana. That's where I was born and raised. Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi's on one side and Arkansas right above the Gulf of Mexico. And go-kart racing was the thing to do. And my sister, who is 14 years older than me when I was born, um, she was already 14. My brother was 11. They were racing were, were with my dad. Were you a mistake or not? Well, yeah, yeah. 
I was. No, I was. I was. No, it is a fact. My mom went to the doctor three times, and she told Dr. Birdwell, you know, I don't feel good. And he goes, well, maybe you have a stomach virus. But it just never went away. Okay. And so I always tell her I'm a stomach virus that never went away. Right, you know? okay. And she was happy about that most of the yeah. time. Okay, know? okay. But, <laughs> but uh, and so they, my, my sister decided 14 is, you know, young, turn into a young lady. And she decided that boys were more important on Friday nights going to dinner than beating them on Sunday afternoon. My sister and my dad, I always said, were the two real racers of the family. My sister, even go-karts, you've seen go-karts where these two abreast car racing, obviously, were the same. For whatever reason, and back in those days, the, the flagman used to stand in the middle. Have you ever seen yeah, the yeah, footage yeah, of that? Yeah. You would never see that anymore. No. But the flagman would stand in the middle, and the, and the go-karts would go on each side. Well, my sister... We have eight millimeter video of her going right to the middle and going straight up the middle and the flagman having to jump out of the way. I mean, she was like really aggressive <laughs> and, and she would win most times. And so, but the boys weren't interested in her. As soon as she stopped, things changed. And so that became important. And my brother and, and like I said, my dad, they, they got into motorcycles. I, I got older and I just followed them along. And that, that's really how it started. You know, you're you're influenced in that so much by your environment. But I, I can remember the first race, race or two I was in, I just knew it was what I wanted to do. Right, you know? okay. But your father didn't race? No, they no. raced, well they did, but it was just local, local racing. They didn't, they didn't do anything on a real professional okay. level. Um, my brother did race at Daytona a couple times. Okay. You know, he, TD2s, you yeah, know, remember the, the sure. 250s from the, yeah, 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 the late 60s, early 70s. Okay, so we move on from that. You went yeah. through your school and everything. Were you, a good, were you good at school? Were you academic? Yeah, yeah pretty much. I, my, my parents had a couple of, couple of rules. Even though racing was such a big part of my, my childhood, I rode in that yard. Like I was saying, it stayed empty. That's where I learned my trade. Uh, Ten years of riding pretty much every day. Right. Uh, from the time I was five years old to 15. and But I had a couple of rules. One, you don't ride when no one's home. Right. You always wear your helmet. I talk about in my book, the one day, the, the one day that I didn't wear my helmet, I, had a, I invited a friend over and I was going to show him how cool, how good I could ride a motorcycle. And it taught me a lot of humility. Anyway, I, I decided I was going to jump like this bob wire that was rolled up. I didn't have my helmet on. Right. As soon as I went You'd to watch jump, the Great Escape, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was like it was Steve McQueen's right. fault. Exactly. But my mom came in the driveway right when I hit this barbed wire and went over the, hit the ground. It busted my lip and all this, and and I was, you know, my lip was bleeding. And my mom I was, <laughs> came in and said, "You can't ride anymore for a week." And right. So I learned. And your mate wasn't impressed. No, he wasn't impressed. <laughs> exactly. Um, so. You survived all that clearly, and then racing. Was there somebody that you looked up to that got you into racing? Well, not so much. I, I was very independent. I, I looked up to all the older riders, um, you know, the older, because where, where I'm from, um, dirt tracking, it, it was in the main type of discipline yeah. of motorcycle racing. It is what we call quarter mile. Uh, flat tracking and the movie on any Sunday it's a great movie from the early uh, 70s that really 
talked about what that was about. So my influence wasn't so much road racing. Right. Um, well, I, was there any big names that you looked well, up to at that point, at that era? I, in 1973, it was the first time I saw Kenny ride right. uh, at the Astrodome. I was 11. And I watched the way that he got a bike on the side in practice on Friday morning at the Astrodome. And, and it was so much different than anybody else. The only other rider who could ride like that was a guy named Mark Brailsford. And so I, I would really pay attention to those things. And then I would go back to my, to my yard there at 2620 Main Street and I'd practice it. Right. And then, um, so I, I, was, I was one of those very analytical uh, and very practical in, in the way, and very technical the way I, I approached my riding. Now, the one thing I like love about bikes, and this is motorsports in general, but specifically motorcycles, is it really rewards, certainly you could say risk, but it really rewards preparation and understanding how to interact with the bike. And that's what I learned at a very early age. It's why that once I got to Grand Prix, I could pretty much, I could steer with the rear of the bike, front of the bike, different things. Right. And, I, and I learned that in my yard mm. as a kid. So, yeah. But it came from watching, obviously, older riders mm -hmm. and what they could do on older bikes and starting at such an early age and, and perfecting that, that skill. I, um, the other thing that was timing-wise, was that was a period of time in the early 70s, mid-70s, when, when amateur racing really picked up. You know, you can, you've been to Daytona, obviously, mm. many times. Mm. In the early 70s, Steve, mm. the, only, the only championship there was as an amateur was on Wednesday at Daytona. One race. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. There was, and there, there was a little bit of club racing, which I talk about in the book, a couple, couple places. But I was the only kid at the track. I was 11. 12 years old, everybody else rode their bikes there. So I'd, I'd line up in the back against all these adults. That helped me later on. I was not intimidated mm. to ride against right. older people, right. but, you know. Um, so dirt tracking was where it's at. Yes. What, what made the transition then? Clearly there was something that wanted you to step up to road racing. Yes. Uh, in 1973, I started paying attention to in cycle news in the very back of cycle news um, there was they, they started covering the Grand Prix and they were and in June of 73 I, I was looking at it there was a guy named Ken Anderson okay. and Dieter Braun you know yeah, Dieter yeah. Uh, yeah. you know I know Ken Oof. all these guys now but but they they were winning the 125 world championships and things and there was just something about it and, and I liked I liked watching a Daytona, again, a little bit of the older influence. You know, we only went once a year, obviously, in Speed Week. Uh, my brother did it a little bit. I wasn't that successful. Best he finished, like, 35th mm. at Daytona. But anyway, I just, there was something about it. And so a few weeks after looking at the, the photo of Ken Anderson, Oh, the loudspeaker they at Ross Downs one Friday night. It was a flat track outside of Dallas. They announced there was going to be a road race the next day. And so I, as any 11-year-old kid might say, Dad, I want to race that, you know. And he said, well, we don't have a bike. And I said, well, Mr. Carter, I'm sure he'll let me ride one. Had no idea what the classes were. Didn't, didn't realize there's no, you know, there's no... Um, small race bikes or anything. We went to his dealership the next morning, about five o'clock, and, and I, the only bike I could sit on 
was an RD-100. Right. You know the RD, the yep. twin cylinder, yep. the Yamahas from the <clears throat> early 70s. Anyway, my dad, as wasn't unusual for me for him to hold me up in the back of the grid, so I, that was no big deal for me. Did, did the dealership lend you the bike? He lent me the bike, okay. yeah, which, right. like I said, okay. you know, for whatever reason, they listened right. to, you know. Okay. And, and I, was, I, was, I was already winning quite a bit on my 125 flat track bikes. So anyway, we go to the track, and I'll never forget, we walk in, it was like a little shed. It was just this little, it was a drag strip with a return road. I mean, that was it. Yeah. But the other thing that made me want to go there is my dad... The only thing I remember about his go-kart racing, because I heard it from him probably a thousand times, was I did 44 laps in one hour at Green Valley in the 50s. Right. You know, it was years, years before this, just 1973. So I thought, well, you know, at least go to Green Valley, get to see where Dad did this 44 laps in one hour. And so, anyway, we show up. And I was really good in the left-hand corners because at flat track we go left, but the right's not 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 too much. He had one right-hand corner. You go up a hill, left, return road down, a little right, left, and behind the a little parking lot, and then on the front straightaway, and that was it. I finished dead last, dead last, because it was it was already it was the class was zero to two fifty, and I was on an already one hundred, you know. <laughs> And he held me up in the back. Like I said, the funniest part was is when we, my dad wanted to sign, he obviously sign in, and they looked at him and he goes, no, it's not me, it's my son. They, it was so unusual, one, to have someone so young. They never had a kid before want to ride. But the other thing was it was so amateur. It literally, they wrote out on a piece of paper them had my dad sign it like it's okay. I say it's okay, my son to ride, and that was it. Yeah. You know, no, no license, no, no nothing. license, right. nothing. Yeah, basically just okay. Well, you know, run what you run. Things clearly moved on quickly. Yeah, they did. They, they, they started, and and you know what? I moved up the order in the in my finishing position after that, so I was good. Okay, yeah. and and um, at this point. Uh, financially, was how did you yeah my need dad need money to go yeah racing? I know I know um, my dad and my mom and um, they owned convenience stores just just like what you see on any corner here in the UK uh, pretty good like maybe around this size the biggest one they have is around about the same size as this room but not real supermarkets right. and it's a it's a business and private ownership so it allowed my dad and I to travel. Because at our peak in the mid-70s, before I turned professional at 16, we were traveling 40 weekends a year, about 130,000 miles, which wow. would be yeah. close to 200,000. Wow. Yeah, kilometers. Yeah, yeah, and we were doing that. We'd do weekend trips to Florida. Jeez. And Florida from Louisiana is almost as far as it is from UK to Florida, it seems oh. like. Yeah. Wow. So I mean, dad, it's a long way. So. Dad had seen a sparkle in your eye, and, and because otherwise dads wouldn't do it. Yeah, know? my dad, my dad and I, I and I, I'm, I talk about this in my book that, and I'm so thankful for this. And anybody who's had a moment like this, you, you certainly appreciate what, and know what I mean. My dad, I moved from Louisiana uh, in the mid mid '90s to start my school in Las Vegas, and so I'd always been around my family my entire life. I was born and raised. I'd fly over here during my 12 years in Grand Prix, do the race, fly back to Louisiana. But, so I really hadn't been around my dad. And, and I got, I was doing a broadcast with Speed Channel 
when they were they were getting going. This was like I said, late nineties. Night it was it was in September of ninety nine, and in a place in a, in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was living in Vegas at the time. And so, but the flight I was on was direct, but they had one leaving right after that stopped in Shreveport for whatever reason, and then on Las Vegas. And I thought, and then this is for two thousand, you know, um, two thousand or September eleventh. Uh, 2001 so everything was a little easier to get around and you could make changes so I made the change on the flight hmm. and I went back to Shreveport spent two days around dad and with dad and mom and, and it was a month later he died hmm. and I hadn't been able to spend it anyway I'm so thankful for this amount of time one thing we talked about was is he never when, when I was growing up racing dad I'd overhear him say this and he would say when, when people say, well, you know, Freddie seems to understand this and that, what have you done? He said, nothing. He said, I build them and work on them. He rides them. Mm -hmm. And and I, I noticed we talked like when we were traveling, and he just really, he was the best supporter you could imagine. Because what he did was, is he let me, let me learn. Mm -hmm. And let me pay attention. Now, I, as I said in my book, there was a couple of things. I threw my helmet one time when I was nine, and after I lost a heat race, because I would win almost every week, and I lost a heat race, and I'd seen an older kid, you know, throw their helmet down, and so I came in and I threw my helmet in the back of the van and went and sit in the in the passenger side one Friday night, and so I'm sitting there like sulking, you know. And I noticed the van kind of moves. It kind of moves. This didn't really do anything. Next thing I know, he comes in. He's in the driver's side. He shuts the door, doesn't slam it, puts the key in the ignition, starts it. We had pit next to this this man, a really nice man, Mr. Hughes, and his son Kenneth. And he said, "See." And, and Mr. Hughes goes, "We'll see you next week, maybe." What? Backs out and just leaves. Doesn't say a word. Now, I may have been only nine, but I was smart enough to know that this, you know, this is something unusual. It probably had something to do with me throwing that helmet. Mm. So we leave. We start heading back to Shreveport. Now, normally we'd go to the Days Inn and we have a race the next night. No. We start heading straight back. Home. Oh, straight to Shreveport. We get about an hour out, and he goes, okay. He goes, you know what you did wrong? Still, you know, attitude. I say, yeah, I finished second. He goes, No. He says, now, you're not coming next week. If you say that one more time, we're not coming for a month. Yeah. And he explained to me real quick. He said, listen, he said, you know, anybody can win. And, and you've been given this chance, for whatever reason, to do what you do. And I'm here, and you know that. And it's true. He said, but true champions know how to lose. You don't do that. Sometimes you shake someone's hand, you come back next week. That's so it never happened again. A lesson well learned. It was, it was right. a lesson well learned. And my dad, like I said, and he, he sacrificed, and, and, uh, and that was what was so great about when I went back in that September of 99, the month four, passed away. That's all we talked about. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Then things did move on very, very quickly because you ramped yourself up real quick to... How, how did the professional side of your racing start then? Well... Irv Kanemoto, where did he come into this? Well, that was, again, my dad. That was um, in October of 77. We were doing club racing dramatically and grew in the mm. mid-70s. Literally, from that race at, at Green Valley that day in, in the summer of 73... 
when I was the only kid. Mm -hmm. Just within three years, it was a championship called, or, or organization called the Eastern Wera, it was called, that was all over the United States. And in four years, there was a Grand National Finals in Mid-Ohio, and I'd, we went there at the end of the year. And it's, it's exactly what happened. We, we pull in, my dad and I, we have a trailer, and the only spot that was available was next to this panel van, and it was kind of a silver white van. And so when we park, like I said, I'm a history. I know, you know, all the riders, and and they've been going to Daytona for years. And I, I look in the window, and I tell Dad, I said, I think that's Gary Nixon. You know, he was in the passenger seat in this van next to us. And so we we get out, and we start pitting, and sure enough, it's Gary. And uh, there's another young rider that was there. I didn't know know who it was at the time. It was Randy. Mom. Okay. And they had been invited, and the owner of the van and the bikes was Irv. So we, we, he had a, one helper with her, with him named Karen. And uh, anyway, so we go through the weekend, and it rains on Sunday. Anyway, I end up winning the 250 race. I, wow. I win the race, and a guy named uh, Ted Hinter. Do you remember him? Remember the name? Yeah, yeah. Ted. Yeah. Ted was really good 250 rider. Ted got second, and I think Gary was third or fourth, and Randy was around there. Anyway, I, I win the race. So Irv, I'm, I'm just, I'm 15, you know. So I want a TZ250, and and, Irv, and Gary had almost won the 750 World Championship year before. He was riding Irv's 750 and, and the 250. Anyway, Irv comes over to my dad and uh, says, really good, good ride. Now, I didn't find this out until a few years later, but that's what my dad said to Irv. Um, or Irv said, good job. If you ever need, you know, anything or something, let me know. Now, you got to understand, for Irv, Kanemoto, who was my crew chief, and his personality, and you knew Irv, that was a big step to come over. And, and basically, you know, he was making an introduction. Anyway, my dad, who was very, just similar to Irv, very shy, kind of not very forthcoming he said um well he said I've, my son i think is going to be pretty good i've taken him i didn't realize the financial really at that point mm. it had gotten to the point where it was becoming too expensive for my dad and and he felt his ability had got me to there but that was it and so that's that's basically how it started we happened to pit next to okay. each other and um, and so I'm, irv the next year irv stepped in and then after that, we the kind of rest is history in yeah. some ways. But I, my first recollection recollection of you was we'd watched what you've done in the states, obviously, and then with Irv, you turn up at the Belgium Grand Prix. Yes, eighty. Yeah, 90. before that was the match races. Yeah, you. I know you came over to do the match races, yes. but that was kind of uh, not being funny. But every American came over, any good American did, and yeah. went home and stuff yes. like that. Yes. Uh, and and actually, I was talking to Neil McKenzie yesterday, and he was just telling me that uh, fish and chips was like kind of you just came over and loved your fish and chips that's yeah. weird not many people yeah. do that i mean yes. most people come over and laugh about our fish and chips yes but you liked them well i'm from louisiana okay so. all right okay, okay. <laughs> but the match races must have been fun in the it yes. was like it was like a school trip really wasn't it for you well guys? it was because you get like this cool jacket yeah, yeah, sure. You know, I, I, I looked at it not too long ago. I have it in my storage room in Shreveport. And, I mean, with no lights on, it's bright, you know. 
Yeah. But it was this big American flag, and I remember because I was a, just an add-on at then. A guy named John Long, if you remember. Yeah, I remember John Long. John, yeah, yeah, John. John dropped out after the 200, the Daytona 200, because you had to be 18 to race international races. I turned 18 in December '79, went to Daytona, almost won Daytona uh, on Ur's bike, but broke crankshaft while leading. And so we got invited, Irv and I got invited to come right. over. And so we were, so we, we're not used to being in team events, but this jacket at 18, <laughs> I thought, was the coolest thing that you could get in there. I, I mean, I was like, I remember short of breath. I was burning up, but I had my jacket on. <laughs> you couldn't have been burning up in England. <laughs> I know. I think it was pretty warm. Okay. Yeah. Right. And that so was your that first was time yes. of uh, Brands Hatch, it was. Mallory it and Orton Park. It was. It was. All right. it was. And you it did was. good. I did. The first day, the first day, I, I beat Kenny and Barry. Yeah. I did. That's a pretty cool thing to I do. I know. And the track for me, and this is where I think my experience all the Americans at the time specifically that were coming over. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying a while ago about my, mine was looking at Ken Anderson and things. And then of course, Steve Baker came over and Kenny came over and they were the, mm. the beginning of yeah. obviously racing in the world championships. Pat Hennon. Pat Hennon first. Yeah, Pat Hennon, yeah. yeah, Pat yeah. Hennon, exactly. Mm. A lot of people forget about that. I know, Pat. yeah, because yeah. Pat came, he finished second in the World Championship, he did. I think, in 76. He did, mm. he did. Mm. And was leading it when he had the he crash was. Yeah, in he was. 78. Yeah, he was, in 78, absolutely, yeah. yeah. At the old man. But anyway, so there was there was all of that, you know, coming over. I think one of the things that took the, the, the European riders by surprise is two things. Our ability to learn circuits. I know that. That was a tremendous benefit for me. Because we basically, at that first day at the match race, or at Brands Hatch, got like 30 minutes that on was Thursday. It. That was it. Yeah. And then you show up, you know, Friday morning, like 20 minutes, you line up. And the only lap I didn't lead in the first race was Graham led the first lap. I passed Graham and won the race, and I led every lap of the second oh. one. But our ability came from, and I believe comes from, is that we ride on so many different environments, yeah. flat tracking. Yeah. And it changes hour to hour. So you, you're just, you pay attention to every single pebble and things. And so you, you know, our minds have that capability. They really do of being able to, to absorb that. And I, and I, I remember things visually anyway, like, right. you know, like Pat Hennon. I, yeah. I know about Pat and yeah. things, but I remember the photo that I saw with his crash, you know. Yeah. So it, it, yeah. it, it, that's how I remember things. Yeah. And so I was able to do that. The other thing is the fact that, because we slide the bikes and things at some place like Brands, the big track at Brands. Um, I just love the drifting, you yeah. know, and, and coming over Paddock and for the straightaway and down the, yeah. So what year was that, the first year? Uh, 1980. 80, yeah, right, okay. Mark, I'm April, trying to think 80. who your teammates were then. Uh, I Nixon, saw one Nixon, of them. Nixon wasn't by then. No, He'd no, no. Really. Dave Aldana was, Aldana. Wes Cooley, right. Kenny Roberts, Barry, I mean, uh, Randy, Randy yeah, was. Okay. Yeah. But you would have been probably taking it more seriously than they were, because particularly Dave Aldana, because I, yeah. the only ever time I used to see Dave Aldana was used, they had a big limo for you guys to, to ship you around at times. Maybe that yeah, was the early th days. That, yeah, a this, big stretch limo. Yeah, before that, they, I think they did, because mm. I heard stories about Yeah, it. I remember driving up the M1 one day, and yeah. all I could see was Dave Aldana's out the window. His bare ass was out the window of this limo. <laughs> yeah. And, and you could see people driving along thinking, oh, it must be the Queen or Prince or whatever it is, and yeah, Aldana's yeah, yeah, ass would be Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I saw Dave. I saw Dave this past weekend at Peterborough. Okay. And and you know what the first thing he does? He he loves to tell the story about the first time him and I, him and I were teammates. 
was at Bull Door in 1980. Right. And so I'm, I'm from Louisiana, I'm 18 years old, I'm first year of the Honda team, and, and I kind of have this reputation of being pretty conservative, you know, where I'm from. And so he cannot wait, I mean, cannot <laughs> wait to get me at the airport and take me down to the beach yeah. and see all the topless people. Yeah. And he, I was there. Yeah. <laughs> I got there early. Yeah, exactly. He probably got the idea from you, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but Dave, he, he still tells that story. He loves oh, that. Okay. And that would be Bandol, I guess. Yeah, it was down to Bandol, right, yes. Okay. God, but your life then must have just, I mean, I can remember mine, but yours just was just exploding in front yes. of you with everything happening. Yes, and mm. especially after that day at the match races, because basically I show up on that Thursday, and I'm trying to get out of the way because we had Range Rovers. You were saying about limos. Yeah. They gave yeah. us three or four Range Rovers. Right. Right. We had, a, I mean, yeah. my own car in this jacket. Yeah, yeah. This is as good <laughs> as it gets. <laughs> Didn't get any better. I know. So we no. get to the track. I get out of the car, and all these people start running. And when they get about at the end of the right, right there, I realize they're not looking at me. And, and if I don't get out of the way they're just gonna run me over you know yeah. so i and but by yeah. the next day i i couldn't only get to oh, the what, car what a dream yeah um and that was on tz 500 i guess 750 oh it was, of course it was so yeah, 750, 750. Yeah, yeah right step on again yes you turned up at uh, zolder on yes. the tz 500 yes blue and silver I yes because remember. of what i did at the mattress right. it's not something you would probably you wouldn't see this anymore uh, for many reasons but i had a contract with honda right that I'd signed for the, the um, American Superbike Championship right. for 80 and 81. And Irv, but in my contract, I was allowed to race at Daytona on Irv's bike and like maybe two other events. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, one of them was the match races. Right. And then the second one was going to be Zolder. But that came about because of what I did at the match races on Monday evening after Olden Park. Right. Uh, went to Paul Butler's house, and yeah. and so I had a contract to race for Yamaha in Europe, one or two events, and then I had my Honda contract. Okay, and, and everybody you, knew about it, you know. And they allowed you to ride. Well, the because Honda, the ultimately, there were three riders on the American Honda team. When I got the call from Dennis McKay in December '79, they there was no slot, but Japan. Ira Majiri and Ms. Tron had seen me race at, the, at Daytona. Right. And so, you know, with the disaster at Silverstone, you know, obviously the first in our... Anyway, their whole thing was they wanted to kind of bring me along, and, and uh, so they signed me as the fourth rider. And right. so um, that, that's how that came about. And then, so I go to Zolder. Yeah, um, which, uh, again, I guess it was... You with big wide eyes, kind of checking out Absolutely. crowds and everything yeah. else that turned up. When I, when I, two things. First thing was, is I was I never seen before. People eat beans and tomatoes for breakfast. Oh, okay. Right. We don't do that in Louisiana. They were Belgians. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, that was the first thing. The other thing was I, sh I remember, we Irvin and Stuart. Toomey, who yeah. was Irv's good friend, you remember yeah, Stuart? Do, yeah. yeah, Stuart was was there with Irv, and so we had the this that first year where you rode the bike, and yeah. so did Barry. It wasn't yeah. that inline was not. It wasn't good. Was it, it wasn't good. No, no. I didn't. I didn't know until I figured that out as we after we got there. But even then, I you know I I could just I was 18 and unbelievable being a Grand Prix. But I remember we show up 
And even though I'd be kidding Barry, I, you know, at the match race, we battled over those three days. It was great. I was never intimidated, really. But the respect I have, mm. and still do, mm. for anybody that does what, you know, what we do, and, and no matter what level, because I, I understand. But I remember I show up, and I'm at a Grand Prix, you know, never been to a Grand Prix before. And so we, we finally get there after we had all kinds of problems at the border. Yeah. You know, um, Stewart's driving. We're going between Holland and Belgium. We're trying to get to the track on member both days. We had to practice. Exactly. Had this thick yeah. thing. We're in this van cramped in. There's not even a seat for me. I'm sitting like in the bikes here. And so I'm sitting there and, and we're going through the border and all Irv keeps you know, Irv, he yeah. was so worried about everything. Stuart's going, I'm not stopping at the border. Irv goes, you got to stop. And he's, it's like 30 degrees and he's, he's sweating. And, and all, all Stuart says, Irv, don't look over there. If you don't look, they won't see us. <laughs> So you can imagine how well that worked out. Yeah. We, we go through, and about three miles down, you hear the police, oh. and they, they jump in front. So we sit there, and they're all Irv is saying, I told you, I told you. <laughs> anyway. So and I'm going, do you think I can get, we're going to make practice? Uh, you know? uh. So finally, we get to the track, and I'll never forget this. And we, we pull in, and the five, we, I missed the first session, but the 500 is going. And I, I ran, and... and stood on top of the, the top, and I was overlooking the front straightaway, and the first bike that came over the hill was Barry right. with the Akai Yamaha, yeah, and then yeah. Will Hartog, yeah. and then Kenny, and then Virginia Ferrari, and it was, right. Right. it was good stuff. And I think then I think Steve Parrish. Yeah, I was right at the back, actually, yeah. <laughs> Definitely at the back. But, you know, it was, it was just an amazing thing, and, and that's when it hit me. Like I said, I wasn't, I, I was, it wasn't a, a feeling of, like I said, intimidating. I just, I'd, Oh, I may have been only 18 years old, but I've been right. It's my 14th season. Yeah, right. You know, I'm, sure. I was so ready to go. Well, you ruined a lot yeah. of careers because we all thought we were good till you turned No. <laughs> um, so then, obviously, the Honda thing all kicked into gear yes. and, and yeah, stuff it was, like that. It was, you know, that first year with Honda was not the best mm. because, one, is the, the super bike. I'd won two races the year before in the Kawasaki in America. And... Uh, filling in for Mike Baldwin, and Mike had gotten hurt at Loudon, and so I'd raced two times, won both races, and they were asking me to sign, but I'd seen the broadcast. There was the broadcast from Silverstone, and I was on ABC Wild World Sports, and and I just knew that's where I wanted to go, and 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 for Honda, you know, so I didn't sign with Kawasaki, and I waited, and and then they they were putting. Gary Mathers, who was the Honda, uh, Kawasaki team boss, he said, Freddie, I'll give you one more week or we got to sign another rider. Because mm -hmm. they're waiting. And that's it. And I got the call from Dennis McKay and signed with them. And the other rider was Eddie Lawson. And mm -hmm. Eddie got the Kawasaki. And that bike was perfect for him. Mm -hmm. And he won the championship. But during that first year, when my Honda was blowing up, I jumped off the bike at Charlotte because the oil filter blew off of it, mm -hmm. you know. And someone asked me, well, what's that like? I said, the, oh, well, I said, imagine you're driving down the freeway at 130 miles an hour in gear, at least have gear on and a helmet, and open the door and just decide that you should jump out, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's not an easy yeah. thing to no, do. No, it's not. You know, you can talk all day long about it, but as soon as you start hearing the wind noise, it's like, you know, and you look at the ground, you know, this might hurt a little bit. Oh. And so anyway, I, I, I just 
and jumped off the bike and it didn't hurt me. But there was a lot of incidents like that. I, obviously, the match races were great. You know, riding the, that 500 at Zolder, as, as you experienced, mm -hmm. I, I got hit on the start by John, John Scotto hit me. Uh, I didn't know how to push start the bike, you know. Because you'd never done that before? I'd never done it before. And so I was, you know, I pushed, I, I thought it was started, you know. And I let the clutch out, and the bikes are going by, and Johnny hit me, and my knee hit the, the, the gas tank and busted the petcock. And uh, anyway, it, it I looked down, my foot was slipping off, and I made a couple laps. But again, I thought it was great. It was, it was, but what, what made everything start moving at least in the right direction? Uh, I didn't win the Superbike Championship. And other than the match races, um, we struggled. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'd win a couple races. I knew it's where I should be, but it was in October, and I, I'm talking about this in the book. In October, Ira Majiri and I sit down in Japan, and, and he said, I know this year has been tough, and he said, we'd let you go because they maybe some other manufacturer, Yamaha and, and Suzuki, that were wanted to do something maybe. But And Irv being a two-stroke guy, um, I said, no, I'll stay. He said, well, we're, we're going to create a company, and it was HRC, and we're going to build a Two stroke, yeah, but it won't be for eighty one, mm. be for eighty two, and mm. so that's. Then uh, eighty three comes along, yeah. and you're world champion. I mean, that was pretty rapid. I think third or fourth in eighty two. I was I was third. Yeah, third. I was third in eighty two. Yeah, and then win the championship. Yeah, I had second, um, locked up after Graham dropped out of the, the last race in Germany. I was leading the race, and this was my sixteenth year in racing. And until that last lap, three corners from in, and Sachs, you remember, right, yeah. you know, coming in from the stadium, and it was hockey night, German Grand Prix hockey. And, and I'm, I'm leading the race. I come around, one lap to go, and I see the pit board, 2.2 seconds. Chalkboard, as they yeah, were. Yeah, back, back in those then, days. Yeah. And, and back in those days, that 2.2 seconds was from the previous lap. We didn't, they didn't have radio, they didn't have someone out in those days, so it was a previous lap. Well, I went 2.2 seconds lead. I knew the bike, had, because it did a few times that first year, it'd break a ring on the front cylinder and drop some RPM. Anyway, I'm still leading. I think it should be fine. I lead all the way through the back. I'm coming into the stadium. And as I'm coming into the stadium, you know, Hockenheim is about 80,000 people. And everybody started to stand up, and I'm thinking, great, you know, they're excited I'm going to win the race. Maybe. And so I, but it wasn't that. It was that Randy and Franco had run me down, and they were, well, you know, they stand because it's going to get exciting. And we go into Saxon, and Randy goes by, and Franco tried to go with him, and we both go down, and it breaks my collarbone. Mm. And I, I described in the book, it's the thing about racing, is that I go from just 300 yards earlier to now I'm in the ambulance, I could hear the national anthem in the little medical center being played for Randy. Mm. It was the first time I ever broke a bone racing. I was about to say, your early career, you kind of bounced real good. I did, yeah. I did. And that's yeah. youth for you. That's good about being 18, I know. 19. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I bounced um, it up. Okay, uh, and then the big one for me was your 85, doing the 250 and 500 in one year, which was, by then, it was pretty unheard of to do two classes. It used to happen in the early yes. years with the TZ, 250, yeah. 350, and stuff like that. But that, what, what made you want to do it? Well, th this is the thing, I, I think that that it changed a little bit in, in, in that era specifically. 
is when Honda got involved in 82, and then with outside, you know, Marlboro was already involved, and mm. there was different ones. There was more money. So the rapid increase in the speed of the bikes, if you look at between 82 and 85, and I won at Belgium in 82, and I won the race there in 85 at Spa, but my lap times were almost 10 seconds a lap faster. Wow. Four seasons. Yeah. Tires, though. Oh, yeah. well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, we went from bias to radials, the aluminum box frame, I know, from HRC. Mm -hmm. we, we started to figure out a little bit on rear ride height and trail a little better. Mm -hmm. Certainly, in, in that battle between Yamaha and Honda. Mm -hmm. You know, Yamaha and Honda really never competed, certainly not in the two-stroke era, mm -hmm. obviously until mm -hmm. 82 and, and beginning. And so they were spending a tremendous amount of money. And anyway, it's just a lot of things were, were making, uh, improving as far as power and things. But Kenny had tried in 1978. Uh, the first jury came over. In fact, he was trying to win three championships, the Formula 750, 250, mm. and the 500, mm. if you remember. He was, I mean, he always said that was to get more track time. It was, it yeah. was, exactly. Yeah. His reasoning for doing it was different, uh, mm. or was mainly for that reason. Was it and the contract? Was it fatter with the two classes? Or for him or me? You. Yeah, yeah. But, but not what you think. Okay. And, the, and I'll, I can, I'll tell that story in a minute. Yeah. I, I'm the one who brought up the idea. Okay. Honda had built a production 250 that Joey Dunlop was running a little yeah. bit. Uh, it wasn't very good. No. It was basically a production you know, engine. And, and so anyway, they were, they, eventually they would have, because at 82, 83, 84, they were just focused on the 500. This was HRC. And so they were just getting their you know, uh, feet wet and things. And so they were, they were going to expand eventually 250, 125, the whole thing. But they hadn't yet. And when I brought up the idea after the Dutch Grand Prix, mm -hmm. when we were leading, and by dropping out of that race, like I told Irv, if we, if we drop out of any more race, we're just we're running out of time. We're not going to the championship. And the bike we were using, the gas tank on the bottom, was this bike that we knew everything that they suspected was the right way to go. It wasn't with uh, center gravity so low and things. So they were learning but it caused some problems. It threw me down the road a few times, had a wheel explode. It wasn't easy to, to work on and things. So anyway, the Dutch Grand Prix was in June, now last weekend, last Saturday of June, um, like it normally is. And I broke, as we had a couple of times, spark plug cap came off. Mm. And because with the exhaust pipes, you couldn't, George couldn't oh, yeah. get his hand right. in there, yeah. you couldn't put it back on. Right. There was no way to, without taking the fairing off. Anyway, 25 cent part and knocked us out of the lead winning the race. So as we get back to the motor, I'm going to tell her, I said, you know, if it doesn't look like we're going to win the championship this year, maybe we should try it to the next year. And Kenny had tried it, and like I said, my, my knowledge of history and things, and, and I just thought, it, I just felt it was something we, we should try. And, uh, and it was like being that 11-year-old kid again because when I got everybody together, they said, okay, and, and Hariki had wanted to build a 250 anyway from scratch. And he built the bike that we started with. He basically, you know, in those days, you didn't have the computers and things you have now and, and the programs, he, and you draw it by hand. Mm. He built this bike from nothing to the first prototype in three months. Wow. And it was the bike that, in my opinion, 
revolutionize what the NSR 500, the bigger brother, bigger bike could be. And because of what Hariki was able to do right. from nothing. And it was the first bike really with the proper unit pro link that we all, everybody uses today. Mm -hmm. And so that bike was, was the beginning. The difficulty maybe compared to the 60s and 70s was this, is that most of the bikes that the two championships were won on were similar. Like in the MV, you know, the 350 and 500 was basically the same motorcycle. Ten horsepower difference, exactly. Yeah. Mm. The 250 and 350, like Korg Ballantin won on in 78, 79 with the KR 250 and 350. Basically same bike, very similar. The, pro the, the difficulty, and I knew it with the 250 and the 500, is they're completely different. And different lines, speed, you're looking at 70 horsepower versus 95, 500 is 155. Mm. You know, sure. huge difference. Yeah, double. Yeah, a little bit more actually, a little bit right. more than double. Um, and so there, there was just a lot of things. And and in the winter testing, for example, I had this incredible team for '85, as you know, Jerry Burgess and Stuart Shenton. These are and Irv Kanemoto, just the amount of world champions they in uh, championships, titles as mechanics and crew chiefs. They would they would get over the years, in the years to come, but. As we're sitting there, in, in winter, the first night before we started winter tests in Australia, I, they're talking about all the things we're going to test and them developing the radial tires and basically two brand new motorcycles. I said, the problem's not going to be that. The problem's going to be is my ability to be able to adapt in one lap between one motorcycle and the next. Mm -hmm. And that's what I worked on from that very first day when we were doing testing is I would test the bikes back to back. Okay. And it, and it, and it caused, it, it created a lot more work for me mm. because I'd have to run more laps. You know how we do sure. testing, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, you ride the same so bike. So generally the know. 250 would be first, wouldn't it? Well, it would be, but not all the time. Right. Yeah, okay. like for example, in the, the first time I won both races in the same day was the Grand Prix at Mugello. The 500 was first. Okay. And, and to tell you how... For example, practice sessions. One would stop, and you remember the other one would go right out, so there's no time to debrief. But that day at, at the Tang Grand Prix, I'm on the podium, and they're just finishing the national anthem, and the 250s are going out of the, the pre-grid. <laughs> and, and I have the champagne, and, I, and it was a tough race with Eddie and Christian. And I'll never forget Eddie is, Eddie's second. And I turned to give him the champagne, and the only and Eddie didn't say much, but he, he looks at me, and he goes, "Better you than me." <laughs> you know. I no, said, "Thanks, Eddie. No, I appreciate." And you that. had to sprint. I literally ran, and and yeah, I ran and, and no. got on the bike. No, most time I could at least drink like two big bottles of water, change gear, but not that day. I thought I was I was fine, and and. Mm. It was, but the kind of, I guess, the adrenaline also kicked in. Yeah, what but what would be easier, 500, 250, Well, it depends. Right. It it depends. The the 500 was obviously more difficult. Yeah. Uh, we we had some issues and a lot of with the first radials, a lot of uh, chattering problems and things. Um, that's what makes it interesting. Mm -hmm. if, if you were to ask, because we ride our, our older bikes a lot at these classic events, you put a new set of tires on it, the bike is so much better. Mm -hmm. You know, Those old tires were not good no. at all no. you know, compared to 
what what we have today and what you may if you ride today on a on a it, street street tires, you know. Um, but anyway, the five hundred, the chatting prop, but the two fifty. What made the two fifty tough was the man I was racing against, mm. Tony May. Yeah, yeah. I could spend an entire race, try we the entire season. He, ne I, I don't remember, and I remember pretty much every race. He, he never made a mistake. Right. I mean, no matter how much, I, I the the French Grand Prix at Le Mans, and every time I see Le Mans, I think about it. You know, where the chicane is in the back. Used to be that kink. Yeah. Um, I went, the race was 22 laps. It took me 20 laps to get him to move over three feet. Because <laughs> the only place I could pass him was if I didn't roll off the throttle going in that kink, and I passed him on the outside of my memory through there as I'm going, and Tony moves over thinking I'm going to pass him on the side. I go around him, and he just looks at me like this. He like, <laughs> couldn't believe it. I got by him and won the race. But, but it was, that was it. And so it was, in many ways, the 250 because of racing with him, you know, it, it was mentally yeah. the just yeah. the fatigue. And, you know. and yeah, and um, with the 250s, it is just so much about corner speed as well. It is. Unlike it is. getting the thing stood up and everything yes, else. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, well, that was um, that was kind of your best year for obvious yes, reasons. Yes, absolutely. Then you were plagued with a lot of injury problems. Yes, beginning, actually beginning in 85. Um, do you think you overdid it, 85? Well, I'll probably the 10 years riding in my yard every day, right. four yeah. hours a day, yeah. you know, because um, I've, you know, had the opportunity, obviously, in years since, and you you meet other athletes and you, other people, repetitive. You know, back when I had my, my wrist and, and those problems. It was carpal tunnel? It was it? carpal tunnel. I mean, they didn't even know what carpal Basically, tunnel was. Basically, if you not, yeah. I know there are doctors in it, but it's when the muscle gets yes. bigger than the sac. Yes, and the nerve. Mine was nerve issues. Yeah. I had, because I had, I had let it go on for so long, and I could deal with the numbness and even the pain, mm. and, and I'd broken it twice, in, actually, in 85. Mm. I didn't, mm. One was at the Spanish Grand Prix mm. in 85, I broke my hand. I crashed in the morning warm-up. That's where that knot was from. Um, we were the front tucked so fast. It was that right kink behind the at Harama. Come down the hill. Yeah, yeah. the one yeah. on the right. Yeah. It, I couldn't. Get, I didn't get my hand out in time. Boy, I came down and broke my hand. Bike went through the ditch, and anyway, they repaired it, and I was able to win the race, get it repaired, and win. But I broke my ankle and a couple of things. But then at Silverstone. Um, that weekend, 85, it rained every day. And in the 250 qualifying, I crashed in turn one mm. on the exit of one. And um, again, hit the same hand. And it's, um, but I was able to win the championship that day on the 250, win the five on a race. But it's why, that's why I didn't race at the last race of 85. Just I was banged up and broke, broke up a little bit. And so I didn't ride at all that winter. Now, I did start training in February. Um, we, that was the beginning in the mid-'80s. I, I get asked questions, you know, one of the questions I get asked is, was there any special training you did for doing the two championships? I said, well, at the time, you know, we rode motorcycles. You did some weight training, but most of the time you, you're riding. Riding you're all the time. Exactly, yeah. you're riding all the time. The other thing, there really wasn't much as far as books and things, except one book that I, I, I was able to find called Eat to Win, by a guy named Dr. Robert Haas. Mm. It was easy for me to remember. It was the only book I could find. Mm. You know, now there's there's millions of them. But back then, they really was just in the beginning of understanding that. And so anyway, I didn't ride, like I said, in the winter of 85. Um, and I talk about this in my book. But 
I trained, and I was actually in better shape than I was even for 85 because it was a year on. I, I had started following. There was a couple other books, I think, by the beginning of 86, and I was only going to do the 500 uh, championship, and I really was, was ready to go. And I go to Harama. I do one day of testing about 10 days before because you couldn't ride at the Grand Prix circuit a week within a week. And I do one day, come back for the Grand Prix, get pole, was leading the race on Sunday. And it's basically, that was the last time, well, the last time I would ever lead a race, but, you know, I never won another Grand Prix. And, and it was, it was a, and I talk about this in the book, I didn't, you know, you, you're a professional. And, you know, it's, our relationship, even though Steve and I, you know, we do some press stuff now, you know, we're journalists. I'm not, mm. I'm not a journalist. We do broadcasting things. But the press, especially at the time, and this is where it's changed a lot. Because of social media, the writers can speak directly with you. Mm. In those days, they were our conduit to the world. And there was a real adversarial relationship. And, and I, there a lot of your feeling as a writer that they're just trying to, they would always try to stir up problems. You know, they would run from me to Eddie to Kenny, especially with Kenny 983. And so it was a very, it was not a very trusting relationship. I was 21, 22, 23 years old. And I I had this problem. I, I didn't finish the race and I, I came in. I couldn't feel my hand. I couldn't brake. I couldn't do anything. And I didn't use the rear brake anyway. And so front brake is stopping. I mean, that's that's how you get the motorcycle slowed down and turned. So anyway, I, I stopped the race. My crew is so upset. You know, not at me, just disappointed, you know. And and I think everybody felt the gravity of the situation and, and I know I did. And I, I go to the press conference that Rothman's had organized and the first question I get asked is, did you pull off the track because you wanted more money? Oh, wow. <laughs> The only thing I could think of, and this was really hard for me, I, I wasn't a very outspoken person. I said, you obviously have never raced in a Grand Prix before, you know. And I meant that, of course, it came across as sarcastic, which I did mean a little bit sarcastic, you know, because it was, I, I admit, I was, it was traumatic. It was, I, motorcycling had always been my comfort zone. And, and I, I had... And I, and I talk about this in the book, that I had moments the previous year. One of them was in, at my townhouse in the fall of 85. I kind of felt things were over. And, you know, hmm. and, and, and that day was like, I'm actually sitting here at a press conference. At not my, wanting to be there. Not want, oh, my, no. And, and, and that was the first question. That's what I said. But basically, of course, I would say it differently. I would say, listen, you obviously have not ever led a Grand Prix. Don't understand what it takes. And that's the respect I have for it. There, of course, my, money is that, that has nothing to do with it. And it was traumatic. I don't know why my hand, you know. I'd had some problems anyway. We ran some tests, ended up having surgery too, you know, waited too long, and basically it was never the same, but I've talked to many athletes, and it, it happens, you, you know, your body, everybody's body wears out differently. And by uh, then, you've been 20-odd years. Oh, crazy. yeah, 19 I mean, years, yeah. That's, that's a long, long career. Yeah, most. and you got to realize, I'd been racing up until I went to Grand Prix. I'd race sometimes 
more races on a weekend than I would an entire Grand Prix season. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've raced 15. I've raced Friday night, four classes, Sunday or Saturday and Sunday road racing, five classes, and Friday and Saturday night, like I said, four classes, dirt tracking. Right. Yeah. And I do that right. 20 times a year, yeah. you know. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. But unfortunately, you know, that's, that, that is, happens. That you know? happens, yes. Um, yeah. You know, you had a far better career than just about anybody else out there. You were, honestly, you were the Mark Marquez of the, the era, and everybody mm. looked up to that. So it must have been tough for you to, it for was. to not have that. It was. It didn't come naturally. Well, I wouldn't say it didn't come naturally, but right. it didn't come as easy. Right. Also. Well, and also the fact that, again, motorcycling for me, and this is what I really, this is what I tried to convey in the book, that the, the, the part about the connection that I, motorcycling and the opportunity it gave me not only to hone my skills and to give me the chance to learn and, and to trust my own judgment and all of those things. But as a kid, I went through a couple, some trauma. I went through a leaf fire and some other things that I talked about. I burned all the skin off my left hand when I was two years old. And so I had a skin graft operation for years. I had to wear a sock on my hand. I, I couldn't even let any sun. And it hurt every night. And it was motorcycling, riding my mini bike in my yard. Forgot that made, about it. Yeah, that mm. forgot, I forgot about it. And also, it was probably physical therapy. You know, that was the thing didn't even know so much about in the 60s. Mm. But it gave me that. Mm. And so... For me, when it got to that point in 86 and 87, and also the way that things had kind of worked in my life anyway, you know, how I got to Mr. Honda's house and, and, and all the things, I, I had the opportunity to go car racing, and that kind of fell in place very similar. Yeah. I, I went and got my license, showed up first race, almost won the race. Chip Ganassi gives me a call. I go and test an in, uh, Indy Lights. In, Emerson is in any car. And, and it was and with a guy named Jeremy Dell, who's got a sponsor, Build a Square, and, and it was a natural kind of moving that direction because the motorcycle wasn't going. But, and I, I talk about this in the book, that, that, but what did I do? I go back to what I know, even though, you know, maybe it was time to move on. Would I go back and change that? Well, all the things that I learned through those struggles is, is a tremendous benefit today. I couldn't write the way I do and what I understand. Maybe it would have been different. Maybe the cars, you know, would have, mm, would have, would have been different. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Mm, you don't yeah. know. If and buts, hey? If and buts from mm. Candy and us. Mm. We'd all have a Merry Christmas, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, we've got to get some questions from yes. you guys because um, we're here to answer anything. I've said it before. If you've got any marital problems or sexual issues, speak to me. Six. If you want... <laughs> More experience. Yeah, very, very experienced from that. Um, but also, from a racing point of view, obviously, we're here to answer some yes. questions. So uh, we are going to have an auction a bit later on with that over there. And just also to announce that Freddie's spoken about his book. I've written a book. And yes. It comes out tomorrow. And I've brought a few along. I've stolen them because they're not supposed it's to be out. He's very tomorrow. modest by saying he's got his book here tonight. Yeah. So. But yeah. before we do the Q&A... Freddie, each time we get one of you guys along, yes. we like to give you a memento of being here. Well, that's very good. Now, I'm going to present you with a piece of original 1908. That's a long time ago, yes. even in American well, terms. Yes. 1908 track. Oh. Okay, so treasure wow. that. I will. Mr. Parrish has Trust already me. got I've one. Got, mine's bigger. No. <laughs> well, of course it is, Steve. Freddie, yes. thank you. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. That's okay. very kind. So, usual rules of engagement with 
the and, and you can see where that's come see? out of when you go okay out of now this perfect example yeah as a kid what do you think i would choose a moon rock or something from Brooklyn. Def definitely something from Brooklyn. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good, right, usual rules. If you have the microphone, you can ask the question. Um, first person to brave the audience. Yes, sir, there you go. We hope it's on, so. Matter, so it doesn't matter the size, by the way, for the stone. <laughs> uh, Freddie, quick question. Uh, yes. Apology for my Italian. I don't know if, I don't know if you can understand me. Uh, what are the main difference in the set of skills that uh, uh, riders belonging to your category, to your uh, generation, have, and in comparison with the MotoGP riders of nowadays? Yes. Would so, you? So let me make sure. The question is: is that the difference between my generation and the way we ride and and our experience versus? The riders today riding a modern MotoGP bike. Correct. Is, is that correct? Correct. Okay. Uh, now, when it comes to Mark Marquez, um, one thing that makes Mark very unique is his ability to manipulate the corner on corner or the bike on corner entry. And so, when the next time you 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 if watch him ride, is what he basically does with the motorcycle, and this comes from, he's a very good dirt, dirt track rider. That's why he talks about he's, he loves left-hand corners. Um, he has very good skill in sliding a bike. Basically what I learned as, as when I was riding my yard as a kid. But anyway, he, he is able to get the bike from this position to here. He's over, he's basically starting to apply lean angle over the speed that he needs to be at to be able to make the corner safely when he gets here. That's why he crashes a lot in practice, is he's finding that limit. He goes in, right? He goes in until the bike basically, he's over the speed of the grip of the tires, and he, that's why he knows most of the time loses the front. What I would do in my ride, in my ride at, in my yard as a kid, I did the same thing when I was testing a lot. Not usually on race weekends, but when I was testing lot, same thing. So in that respect, it's, it's very similar. The electronics on the bikes versus when I was, was I was racing, where do they make the difference? Well, they make the difference in your, your throttle control. Um, the bikes that Steve and I rode, the 500s, and the, and the, certainly the bikes, as I was saying a while ago, by the time you got to the early, mid-80s, a lot of horsepower, your throttle control was essential to be able to, because it was you. You were the, the trash control, wheelie control, everything. You, the way you moved on the bike and controlled the throttle at lean angle. But, it, but in that one respect, it's, it's very similar. Motorcycle, the characteristics of the bike hasn't changed, really, from from the modern era specifically. Once uh, the chassis made huge improvements again in the early mid 80s to aluminum box frames, the general feeling. I've ridden, I've ridden two out of the three Honda MotoGP bikes. And, and again, getting used to the electronics, tremendous amount of horsepower. Uh, they accelerate so hard. Uh, the, the power bands versus on a two stroke bike from my era 
you know, you get that initial hit, then there was a dip, and then it would hit. So, um, again, that's where throttle control came into it. But overall, uh, there's not a whole lot of difference. The other, like I said, that one characteristic that Mark has is what really sets him apart from, uh, from the other riders at this point. Okay, uh, just, just, I'm just going to add to that. The one big difference is when you used to fall off, when I used to fall off, there wasn't that big gravel trap that kind of contained you. And, and you, air, did, or the you didn't have an airbag seat exactly. on and exactly. all, the, all the stuff that goes no, on. So no. doing it, I'm not saying you want to crash all the time, but it's a lot, lot safer. Yes, it is. Limit. It is. Right, I, question yes. over there. Hello, are you still in touch with Kenny Roberts? And uh, if he still has that dirt track at his home, have you ever tried it? Okay. One, uh, yes. I, I, I do see Kenny, uh, usually at least once a year. Um, you drink a lot of wine. Yeah, yeah. It, well, yeah. he does. He does. Well, yeah. Kenny, Kenny is, is, you know, he's, he's king. He's, he is a character. And most people that know about my, our history together, and I, I do address this in the book, there's been a lot of friction after the incident in Sweden one race from the end in 1983. We never touched. I mean, compared to the, what happens today on the track, I mean, we were like two little kids, you know, it's, it was nothing. But the reason why he was so, so upset about it, and it leads into to my next point, the reason he was, he was so upset about it is because he knew that was the championship. Because if we, the next race, the last race at Emily, I just need to finish second if he won. Kenny, really thought he had the championship under control. He had closed the gap down, and then I was able to, to, to win it. So our personalities, and because of our age difference, we've never been the best of friends. But, but we, the respect we have for each or certainly the respect I have for him, and, I, and he does for me too, it's, it's been a little bit uncomfortable for most of the last 30 years. <laughs> because... We see each other about once a year, and he brings up, for example, I did a thing at Suzuka Circuit this 2012, and this was kind of the key moment, that happened, what happened the next day, I'll say this in my book. I'm at a, at a banquet, and it's the 50th anniversary of Suzuka Circuit. They invite all these world champions there, and every car manufacturer, Japanese, is represented, and you have from, you know, the only non, the only past Honda Formula One world champion, the one there was Senna, basically. I mean, Prost and PK and Nigel Mansell and, and all these, and racers, same thing. And they, and they bring me up last. Kenny was there and everything. They bring me up last because of my story uh, and winning the first 500 championship for Honda. So what an honor it was. So I'm standing in front of all these greats and I'm telling the story and and I tell the story about Ms. Tronda, and I get to the end, and the whole room is silent, and, and I get to the point where I say, I, I walk into Ms. Tronda's home, and he thanks me by putting his hands on my shoulders, and, he's, and he had tears in his eyes, Ms. Tronda did, and he said, thank you. And, and I, that was my story, Ms. Tronda, and, and the whole place goes silent, and one person starts to stand up, and this voice in the very back says, you were lucky. <laughs> no one in that room, didn't even have to look. No. no. And all I said was, I said, well, I guess sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Yeah. And yeah. Everybody loved me. Yeah. Yeah. And so the next day, next day, Kenny and I are up on the stage, 
and about a thousand people, we're in Japan, a thousand people, and, and, and I finally said to him, because see, because of all that friction, I realized I never had said this, what I was fixing to say. I said, okay. I said, I want to say that I, I know that, that maybe I had some ability, but it took all that, all those years of work, the emotional commitment, all these things, to even compete with this, with this, with this man, with Kenny, and and I want to say it was one of the greatest privileges, and I want to thank him for helping me make the ride I became. From that moment on, it's been different. Good. And he came and he hugged me, and I actually hugged me. So I realized, 30 years. I'm I'm telling somebody, just don't not say it. Go ahead and say it and get it over with. He's to right. anybody, yeah, exactly. Uh, and he is all right now, but he did have a bit of a ticker problem. He had yes, he did, stents. and I think there was a lot of things that have happened. And, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we all, we all have more in common, no matter sure. what. Than, yeah, yeah. But he's fitting well. He did have a he bit is. of a heart thing, and they put a new valve in him. And, and, sorted and he also, he doesn't live anymore in Modesto. That's where he had his ranch. He lives, actually, he moved from last summer to Lake Havasu near Eddie. Yeah. And so yeah. I think a, a lot of changes, and he's... And he's got a really, his wife is super. She's from Japan. They spend a lot of time in Japan. So I, I look forward to next Which time. Which I find amazing. And she is lovely. But she Kenny is. didn't used to say many nice things about the Japanese. Uh, but now he's got a Japanese <laughs> wife. But he did say to me, he loves his wife dearly because yes. she eats in another room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Freddie. Yes. What frightens you more? Racing against Christian Sarrell or riding the CB750 on the banking at Daytona? What, what frightens me more? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, Thank you. I, I, I always, if, if it's raining, and, and even today I'm at a classic event, uh, I'll be at Dijon in a couple of weeks, and so uh, I'll always be looking back and make sure Christian's not behind me. Yeah. The reason is, is in 1985, when I finally got the point lead, about halfway through the season, Christian knocked me down at the at Assen at the Dutch Grand Prix. But he's he's a good friend of mine. He, uh, you can't, but he's such a lovely man. Unbelievable. But he did crash his brains out, yes. didn't he? Well, it was, yeah, it was so funny. Yeah, because like in '88, mm. you know, a lot of people don't realize how good he really was, and and he got like eight pole positions. Uh, in 1988, which was a record at the time in a row, and up until Johan did on, on Saturday, Christian was the last Frenchman to be on the pole French Grand Prix. But anyway, he would crash all the time. And and so we're at, at a classic event a couple of years ago, and Ago and Korg Ballant and I are sitting there, and Ago goes, we, we were talking, and, and we, we realized amongst Cork who won four world titles. Obviously, I go 15, I have three. We realized we had one thing in common. We had all been knocked down by Christian <laughs> in a hairpin. And so we all know Christian. So I go winks at me and he goes, watch this. Christian, why did you knock me down? We, and we all know Christian. He Because he remembers, well, that wasn't my fault. Takazumi Kaneyama, he cut over on me. In my case, it was because Wayne had moved over, and I think in Corks, it was Greg Hansford. Right, yeah. okay. Right. Yeah. There was always a third well, party. Well, you know, yeah. yeah. And so this was an hour, and we just laughed, and he just yeah. entertained us for an hour, <laughs> you know. Uh, he did like a crush. Another question, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> a hand up, up the back there, I can see. Be at the back, wouldn't what it? was the NR like? Hold on, hold on, hold on. 
Remember the rules. Yeah. I wasn't told the rules. We were. I was at Silverstone with my yes. dad watching you. Well, watching all of you probably. Yes. Uh, was it in 80 or 81? It was on, 81, yes. Uh, on, on the NR. And yes. Mick Grant was on one as well. Yeah, yeah before, yes. That was the, and I just remember what the, the sound that made. But what was, yes. it, what was it like? Well, the, the first, bike, firstly, the NR was not ready. That's yes, what it exactly. That was, that was the yeah. first name for it. Never, never, never not ready, ready, never raced. Yeah. Um, there was Hondas. And it, this, was, this was one reason why the story I told you about Mr. Honda. Was, was such an important one. One, because he, his two dreams when he started Honda was to race the Alaman and win and, and the 500 World Championship. So whenever they dropped out of Grand Prix racing in the, in the late set, uh, 60s, the last year with Mike Hellwood, they lost the championship by one point. Ago won it, Mike was second. They, were cha they changed the rules to restrict the cylinders to maximum four and they restrict the gearbox amount of gears to six. That was the reason, or the, the main reason they said they pulled out of racing. One of the, really, it was more about that, um, I believe it was Mitsubishi, the bank, mm. had come in to, to help get, build the car division. Right. And Honda was not, you know, they're just motorcycle company. They're not like the other ones that had either heavy industries like Kawasaki anyway. So they, they wanted to, um, expand the car division, so he had to make a choice, and he pulled out. They pulled out. Well, by the mid '70s, they realized they, they needed to get back in racing. The Hondas, if you if you paid attention, they were not very sporty in the '70s. They had lost their way, and the other Yamaha specifically were really making headways with high performance bikes. So they decided to get back in racing, Grand 500 racing, and they decided the best way to do it, the only way to do it, was they could build a four-stroke. Well, when they decided that in 76, by the time the bike was ready in 79, there was no way. They wanted to build basically a four-stroke that mimicked some of the characteristics of the, like a two-stroke, less engine compression, which it had a, the first slipper clutch on it, which is something that bikes, production bikes, didn't really have to about 20 years ago. This was 1979. They, and, and so... The other thing was, is they, as they built the engine, it was four-cylinder conventional four valves and the oval pistons, or round pistons, they couldn't get power. They, they, they had realized that they, the two strokes with Yamaha and Suzuki were competing. This was in, with Barry and Kenny, certainly in 77, 78, or 78, um, that, and going in 79, that they were really behind. So I think they, after the first year, they started building the bike in 77, 78. They went to the old piston, eight valves. It revved, it had a, a power band of between 13.5 and 20,000 RPM. Mm. It would idle, it idled at like 6,000 RPM, just run. It was like, it was like a little watch it, you know. The first time I heard it, um, so, but if we, if we go back to 79, and, and real quickly, so for everybody who doesn't know, the first race it was in was the 79 British Grand Prix, which the race is the race that I saw on TV sitting at my parents' house. Uh, Mick Grant, Takazumi. Mick Grant, Takazumi. Yeah. The only reason they got on the grid was is promoter's option. It, yeah. The bike was so bad. It, wouldn't, it leaked oil, wouldn't even finish. I fell off on it. Seriously, Mick really? Grant wheelied off the right. line. 
wheel it off the line, because I don't know what happened, it must have found some power from somewhere, yeah. and the belly pan was full of oil, all came out, I came around lap one in third position and fell off on it. Fell off. Yeah. So it caused, look at that, it caused everybody problems. Not just those guys, but anyway, Mr. Honda was so embarrassed, he never went to the, another race. I, that's, I, I never met him until that day at his house after we won the 500 World Championship. He basically, it just, you know, just crushed him. So at least, you know, with HRC, that helped. But anyway, that bike, that day at Silverstone, I think they realized that it wasn't going to make it. So we get to 1980. They, they decide they're going to start HRC. They're going to build a two-stroke. We get into 1981 season. They brought this three-cylinder engine to America along with the NR500 because they knew that it was not going to race, but they wanted the American public to see it run. And, and the only place could run at Daytona, in the Daytona 200, I mean, it wouldn't even last to quarter that distance, but so they brought it to Laguna for me to ride, and and a couple of things was very interesting. First off, they told me the power band was thirteen five to twenty thousand. The other was when it, starting it, and I looked at the tack and it idled at six thousand RPM, and it just hummed. You know, it was like, uh, yeah, yeah. and so I thought, well, okay, this could be interesting. I was nineteen years old. I go out on the track, and the first first few laps I rode it there was the power band was not 13 5 to 20 I it was about 17 maybe to 20 and I came in and show how little I knew at the time about where this was and what was available I told him if we could re-gear it you know gear it down they said we can do better than that it was the first bike I saw with cassette gear cassette yeah, yeah. yeah and so they re-geared it and in those days, in the AMA Championship, they didn't have, we were live starts, not push start, and we didn't have qualifying. We have a heat race, five lap heat race. Well, Kenny was there as defending world champion. He would race at Daytona in March, and he would come and race Laguna because we didn't have a Grand Prix in the United States. So now he was used to doing wheelies and goofing around, him and Randy. So anyway, we start the heat race. It's whatever, he, I got a great start, I get in front of him. Well, we start going, and I start, he's way, he chases me down. He can't get around me, and I win this heat race, five-lap heat race. Now, I come off the track. You would have thought we won the world championship <laughs> because this bike had been a disaster. The Japanese are so excited, and that after we, the next day, it broke in the main event, but we went to Silverstone, and that's where you saw me ride it there. And and it was it was an amazing bike. It wasn't, as, as Steve said, NR, never ready, but it, it actually, all the lessons learned from it is what basically fed into the next generation of Honda V4 bikes, the Interceptor, RC30, all these bikes were really, a, that was the genesis of those. Can't believe there's none on marriage. Please put your hands together and thank Freddie right, Spencer. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.
I have to say, Freddie, it's been a pleasure having you here. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you very been, much indeed. Guys obviously appreciate it. Well, so the next highlight yeah. is the auction.